0: You want to picture of this too. Right? Sir, <laughs> sure, now that I'm defenseless and helpless. <laughs> yes, it would have been. <laughs> and I want to do my portion for the talent show by doing my imitation of Mr. Riley doing his imitation of me. remember, the speaker always gets the microphone loud. <laughs> I'm going to make uh, one change uh, in the two messages this morning. I'm going to do the one on the goodness of God first, and then instead of the one on grace for the justified, I'm going to do one on the wisdom of God, and uh, let's just focus our last two hours together on the glory and the majesty of our God. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, and we'll read verses 65 through 72, although we will focus on 65 through 68, but just for context and to keep everything as it is here. David writes, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. We talked yesterday a little bit about the life of David. It was one that was marked to a great extent with infirmities and trials And perhaps as much as he was blessed and gifted by God, he was afflicted and tried by God. Those two things often seem to go together. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, said that God rarely uses a man until he has first crushed him. And that seems to have been the case with David. Yet in this psalm, which is comprised mainly of prayers, David does what we all should do more often— He tells himself the truth from Scripture. Note David's declaration. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. And then notice how he defines dealing well, according to your word. God deals well with his servants, but he does so according to his mind, according to his will, according to his purposes, and according to his word not according to our wishes, and not according to our expectations. He works all things, we're told in Ephesians, after the counsel of his own will. So, if it is good according to the Word, it is good, period. Now, everything that happened to David wasn't pleasant. But experience was not what defined God for David, and it shouldn't be what defines God for us. Rather, what defines God is what God says about himself. God's word is quite clear what God is like. If you look at verse 68, You are good and do good. Now, what makes something good is if the scripture says it is good, and if it defines it as being good, not whether or not we like it, and not whether or not we think it is good. It is what God says is good that counts, not what we say and not what we feel. If God says it is good in His Word, then we can draw one conclusion and one conclusion only. It is good. Now, David begins this portion of Psalm 119 with thankfulness to God for His goodness. And then he interrupts that thanksgiving to beg for the continuance of that same goodness And he shows in verse 67 that this goodness came by means of affliction. And then he renews his praise to God for goodness and entreats Him to more. Now, God is always good to His people. But we most sensibly have proof of it in our afflictions. It may appear that He is dealing harshly with us, but the Scripture couldn't be more clear than what we read in verse 68. You are good and do good. So Thomas Manton, one of the greatest of the Puritans, said that sanctification of afflictions is a greater mercy than being delivered out of them. In fact, David praises God for the afflictions that kept him from going astray, and then he declares God to be good and do good. Now, who of us would do that today? Notice that God does good Because he is good. David, first of all, states his nature and his character and then shows us that his activity comes out of his nature. That is true of everyone and everything. You do what you do because you are what you are. Sinners sin because they are sinners. Righteous people do righteous things because they are righteous. And the reason that we don't do more righteous things is because we aren't totally righteous We aren't totally sanctified, but that is happening day by day by day. But what we are determines what we do. Everything acts according to its own nature, and nothing can recreate itself or change its nature by a simple act of the will. Nothing has the power of self-creation or self-alteration. You've heard me refer several times throughout the week to Jonathan Edwards, and his classic work is probably The Freedom of the Will. That's not where I would advise that you start to read Edwards. It's probably the greatest philosophical work ever written by an American theologian. Edwards thought of it. It takes up about 375 pages in modern print. That was an evangelistic tract. So if you're going to hand out tracts... Do this one. It's probably more orthodox than many of the ones that get handed out today. But he went through this whole thing on the will to evangelize people with this message. Nothing has the power of self-creation. And his argument went something like this. Before anything can act, it must choose to act. But if something can come out of nothing then something had to exist to choose to exist before it existed to choose. (laughs) Nothing can come out of nothing. Because before anything can act, it must choose to act. But if something can come out of nothing, then it must have existed before it existed to choose itself into existence. Now, that argument is to tell the unbeliever that if he's dead in trespasses and sins, he can't create life in himself as a dead person. And the whole of that argument was to show that God must create life in a dead person. And if nothing can create itself, then nothing can recreate itself which means that sinners must look outside themselves for hope. That was the evangelistic nature, and he went through that whole argument to do that. What we are determines what we do. Everything acts according to its own nature, and that is why the heart must be changed by something outside itself. In other words, if a person has a specific nature, they can't, by an act of the will, choose to be other than what they are, which is exactly what the Scripture says about sinners, is that they love the darkness. You can't hate what you love, and you can't love what you hate unless the nature is changed, and then you will act according to a new nature. And that is why we need to be saved from what we are every bit as much as being saved from what we've done. People want to be saved from what they've done. In other words, they want to escape the consequences of what they've done. But they love what they are. Men love the darkness. They love sin. They love their Father. In fact, Jesus said to them, You are of your Father the devil, and you want to do His will. I mean, if there should be anything on our part, there should be a healthy respect for sinners for this reason. They never disobey their Father. Where is the Christian who can say that? They want to do the will of His Father, they do it zestfully. If we weren't what we are, we wouldn't do what we do. Angry people display anger because they're angry. Selfish people display selfishness because they're selfish. Now, those of us who are in Christ and are being sanctified day by day by day simply put our hope in the fact that today I am one day more sanctified than I was yesterday. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard for us to see growth in ourselves, In the same way that when you have children, you look at them every single day, and they don't seem to be changing much. But someone who hasn't seen them for a year or two years is, my word, look how much they've grown. It's the same thing with a puppy, unless you have a St. Bernard. And then you can see the growth day by day because they're taking up entire rooms of the house. And they leave their own little puppies and little balls all over the house. But this is true of God as well. As His being is, so is His behavior. He is good and therefore He does good. And the implications of that are very, very significant. If God is good and does good, then He can't possibly be evil and do evil. You can't be two different things at the same time in the same place, not even God. You cannot be something and its antithesis at the same time. You cannot be good and not good. That's the point. So if the Scripture declares that God is good, then God is good and He can't be anything but good. So when we see something in Scripture, we realize it must be true and valid unless the Scripture tells us differently. But the Scripture never tells us that God stops being good or that He stops doing good. So we have to conclude that God always is good and always does good. Now again, that's true whether we understand it, it's true whether we like it, and it's true whether we agree with it or not. I mean, simply rejecting something out of hand does not mean we've refuted it, it simply means we've rejected it. So if God is ever good, because He is eternal, and because He is immutable, He must be eternally and immutably good. So if God is ever good, He is eternally good. If he ever does good, he must eternally do good. And there never can be or will be a time when he is not good or does not do good. That simply isn't possible for God. People ask questions like this, is there anything that God can't do? Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? No, but he can make people so stupid they can ask questions like that. God can do anything that is possible to be done except those things that are impossibilities to be done. That's why there are things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't die. He can't change. He can't deny Himself. But those are no indications of weakness. Rather, those are strong affirmations of His perfection. The fact that God can't sin is not weakness. Don't you wish you had that problem? Is there anything you can't do? I can't sin. Doggone it all. I wish I couldn't sin. God, because God can't sin, He can never decay. Because He can never decay, He can never die. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. So nothing that God does is not good. That's not the same as to say we'll realize it to be good or that we will like it. But again, those two things have no relevance whatsoever except to totally self-centered people, which is what we are. We see, we define it this way. It's good if I liked it. It's good if I agreed. I was uh, mentioning at the lunch table yesterday about a couple that I did some uh, marital counseling with, and I asked the husband, what do you think the problem is? I said, if you could reduce it to one thing, what's the problem? And he says, well, I just don't get any sense that she's on the same page as me. He says, she, the idea of submission is a foreign word to her. And I looked at her, I said, is that true? She goes, I submit to him when he's right. And I look back at him and he smiles. I haven't been right in 18 years. We tend to think that as long as we agree, we understand, we accept it, that it must be good. But it's good because God says it and it's good because God does it. In fact, if there's a God at all, He must be good because one, He alone would set the standard for what is good. Who could tell Him that it wasn't? He would have to be the chief good, and therefore he could never be or do better. And as eternally good, he could never do worse. And again, that book by Jeremiah Burroughs, which the Banner of Truth published, not Soli Deo Gloria, you see, I can be fair and objective. Burroughs says that the greatest sin for a Christian is the sin of complaining. Because we're saying to God, either you could have done more or you could have done better. First of all, the arrogance of that alone is sinful. But secondly, it suggests that we have higher standards than God. And if He just listened to us, it's like the Beatles' song should be a hymn. Try to see it my way. Only time will tell if I'm right or I am wrong. Complaining about God just doesn't make any sense. But as goodness itself, God is good. God's chief obligation is to be good to Himself. Why can't God be good to God? It's possible then that God could do something good to and for Himself that the creature, us, wouldn't accept as good because we don't see the good in it for us. But if we started with the premise that everything God does is for His own sake and His own glory, then it doesn't have to be good for you and me to be good at all. God is more obliged to be good to Himself than He is to anything that's less holy than Himself. And if God didn't love Himself above all else, He wouldn't be good, because He wouldn't be loving that which is most good. If God didn't hate and punish that which is opposed to Himself and His goodness, He couldn't be good because He would be tolerating that which is opposed to His own goodness. Tolerating sin for God would be a sin. Because that is what is opposed to His very holy nature. And by tolerating it and not punishing it, He's showing hatred to His own holiness. So self-love, as far as God is concerned, is the only option. Because there's nothing greater than himself that could lay claim to his own affections. And if God didn't supremely love himself, above all other considerations, it would be an injustice against himself. So it's good for God to be good to God. And it's a better thing than for God to be good to creatures who are less good than he is, which would be us. But the more like God any creature is, the more goodness God is obliged to show to that creature. And the reverse is true. The less like God something is, the less obliged God is to be good or to do good to that creature. So we understand first and foremost that God is under no obligation to anyone but himself. God has one obligation and that's to himself. And so when God makes a covenant with himself... You realize the eternal obligations and implications of that, that since God can't deny himself, if he makes a covenant with himself on your behalf, that's a pretty good deal for us. God can't deny himself by showing goodness to evil, as one Puritan, Obadiah Sedgwick, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly. They had some wonderful names. Obadiah Sedgwick was one. My favorite is Praise God Bare bones. But he had a brother who went by this name. If Christ had not died, thou wouldst be damned, Bare Bones. That's true. Yeah. Here comes the Bare Bones brothers. Yeah. I'm not sure what his nickname was, but I know they didn't call him Fred. The Scripture tells us that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, I didn't give you that quote by Sedgwick. To show kindness to the wolf is to show hatred to the sheep. And if we're to taste and see that the Lord is good, where do we get that taste? It's in the Word. That's where we're said to feed upon Christ. Now, see how David evaluated the situation and the problem. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You see, for him, that was the deficiency. It was David's comprehension of and ignorance of God. So in the very next line, he begs, Teach me thy statutes. Since God is good and since God does good and since the knowledge of God comes from God's Word, then David petitions God to be better versed in the Word and the law of God. I can't think of a better way to say it than this. All of our problems with God come from ignorance of his character. And while this group is atypical for the kinds of groups I speak to, much more educated and knowledgeable in the things of God and theology, my number one complaint against the people who profess to believe in God is they haven't got a clue what that God is like. And they have exhausted themselves in the study of peripheral matters like raptures and eschatology and spiritual gifts and on love languages and how to get out of debt and this and that and the other thing, and they don't know God. Interestingly enough, that was God's complaint. He said, my people do not know me. What a terrible thing. That God could say that about his own people, that we don't know what he's like. And so we invent things to accommodate our own likes and dislikes. Well, the only reason I ever doubt that God is good and does good is because I'm deficient in my knowledge of Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. So David says, as we should say, teach me more of the Scriptures, for they tell me that God is good and does good. And now the issue for me is, like it always is, what is my final authority? If it is myself... If it is my feelings, if it is my experiences and my slant on things, then God may or may not be good. And that will vary every day. If my car doesn't start, God's not good. That's how we think. If you really love me, you'd make this thing run. Right. And so we determine God's love not based on the cross or his election of us, but on whether or not we have been so negligent as to let a three-year battery go four and a half years as if that was God's fault. If my final authority is the Word of God, though, and that Word tells me that God is good and does good, then no matter what my feelings tell me, no matter what my experiences tell me, no matter what my upbringing was like, no matter what my parents were like, no matter what my slant on things may be, the Bible's very clear. God is good and He does good, and there can only be one thing to believe after that. God is good, and He does good. And if we can't abide by that, we will find out if we are actually professing Christians who are really practicing atheists. We act as if God wasn't what He says He is. Now, since God is good, then all that He does is good, because a good God, again, can only do good things. If God could do both good and evil... He couldn't be perfectly good. And that would mean that contraries are possible in the same place, in the same time. And that violates the law of non-contradiction. But if God could only be good sometimes, and could only do good sometimes, then He might be evil other times, and do evil other times. But that would be inconsistent with being a good God, and it would be inconsistent with Scripture. Scripture. God is inherently and eternally good. Psalm 100, verse 5, The Lord is good. So then, the end of God's creating anything, whether it is matter, whether it is being, whether it is creatures, animals, human beings, whatever, is to communicate His goodness to His creatures. God's great gift to you and I in salvation is that we might know Him. See, now, God can get away with saying that without being braggadocious or having an inflated ego of Himself. If I said to you, I want to give you a gift, well, what's that? I'm going to let you know me. You say, well, what kind of a person is that? But that's exactly what God says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life. What's the essence of eternal life? Well, I get to see Grandma again. No. I get to walk the streets of gold. No. Eternal life is this that they may know thee Jesus Christ the only tr- uh, God the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But the eternal God is willing to reveal himself to his creatures and communicate his very life to us. And as we saw the other day, not only glorifying us with the glory that he gave his son, but loving us with the love that he has for himself and that He's revealed Himself in His Word to us, and there is no excuse for us not knowing Him better. If God is only good, then His revealing Himself in whatever way He deems fitting is a communication of that goodness. How can you take a walk around here in the mornings and not come to the conclusion that God has a wonderful sense of ascetics? How can you watch, I was watching the little girl, this little girl right here this morning, applaud for everybody. And I was just absolutely enthralled with the beauty of God's creation and how he creates life. And God cannot communicate himself to us other than exactly what he is. Now think for a minute back to the Garden of Eden and notice that Satan's temptation of Eve was to distrust the goodness of God. His method in tempting her, as it is with us, was to get her to think differently about God than what God had revealed about himself to her. So to do so, Satan convinced Eve that any restriction was not good. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God had never intended that Adam and Eve know good and evil. That's what Paul said. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So God had placed a divine protection on Adam and Eve by His restriction of the menu. But rather than trust that protection, they interpreted it according to something other than what they knew of God. What did God said? Of every tree of the fruit of the garden you may freely eat. Except one. And so, here's how they thought. Any restriction is not good. He opens up paradise to them. He gives them a panoramic view of everything he's created for them. And he says, everything out there is yours and you can eat freely of it, except one. And they did what we did. All God has to do is place one restriction on us and we squirm underneath it. And we say, God isn't good. That's what we do. Our children do it with us. You can watch TV, but you can't watch this show. You people are so mean. Why? Because I said you couldn't watch one thing? You don't trust me, do you? Uh, no. (laughs) No. We do that all. No matter what it is, if there's any restriction, we think all of our restrictions have been taken away. And rather than the rejoicing in the of every tree part, they rejected God's goodness because of the but one part. But if God is always good and does good, then his restrictions must be what kind of restrictions? Good restrictions. This led David to even declare, It is good for me that I was afflicted. How many times have you heard that in the praise and testimony time? Yes. Back there. I want to thank God that I'm afflicted with this disease because he must have thought it was good for me or it wouldn't have happened. And so I praise him for it. When was the last time you heard that? If God determined it best for David to be in an afflicted state... And since God is good and does good, and God did it, it must be good. And that's how we need to learn to think. And we can't get caught up in this kind of permissiveness that says this, well, God didn't do it, He allowed it. But you'd have to also say this, if God is omnipotent and could have done something about it and chose not to do something about it, it must be what He wants, right? I mean, He could have changed it. And he decided not to change it, so it must be what he wants. And therefore, even though it violates all kinds of thought process for us, it must be the best thing. You'd have to argue this way from God's other attributes, even if we didn't have such explicit statements from the Scriptures. If God is perfect, he must be good. In fact, he must be perfectly good. If he's perfectly good, he's incapable of being anything less than perfectly good, because if he was anything less than perfectly good, he couldn't be perfectly good. If he's eternal, he must be eternally good. If he's omniscient, then his goodness is based on perfect knowledge of what is good. If God has perfect wisdom, then his goodness is based on perfect wisdom about what is best in any given situation. If he's immutable, he can never be anything but perfectly good, See, all these things fit together so well. And you can't take one string and unravel it without unraveling the whole thing. If God is infinite, he must be infinitely good. If he's omnipotent, he must be powerfully good. Whatever God is in his other attributes, he is in his goodness. But we have to remember some things. First of all, God is not always equally good to everybody. That is his choice. I mean, He didn't make a plan of redemption for fallen angels. That's one thing that always amazes me, and it's one thing that theologians speculate is the reason why the angels rebelled is because they became aware that God was going to save men, and He wasn't going to save angels. But God does have a general benevolence to all, but He doesn't give saving grace to all. And in that restriction, he shows goodness to his sovereignty. And again, God is more obliged to be good to himself than to anyone else. And goodness isn't the same as mercy, by the way. God's goodness extends to more people than his mercy does. So God commands compassion for the poor when he may not have granted repentance and faith to the poor. God showed Moses his goodness when he wouldn't show him his glory. Second, God is good to all to some degree. The Scripture says His goodness extends over all, but not equally to all, yet in some measure to all. No one is totally void of the goodness of God. And third, whatever God ordains is good, because as a God who is good, He can only ordain what is good to come to pass. But remember, it will be good according to God's definition of good, according to His Word, and that which will glorify Him the most. When God finished creating, he looked at everything he had made and said that it was what? Good. What else could it have been? It must be so, because that which is created will have the same nature as that from which it is created. And God is as good as he is God. Stephen Charnock, who wrote that magnificent work, The Existence and Attributes of God, said, "...we as much undeify him when we deny Him to be good as when we deny Him to be God. His being good is as necessary as His being God. Now then, if we look at that verse again, verse 68, you are good and do good, we see that God is good by nature. And His nature is active in communicating itself to His creation. So whatever God reveals of Himself... And in whatever way God reveals Himself, must of necessity be good things and good means. So it is good when God reveals Himself in His Word. And therefore, to withhold ourselves from the preaching and teaching of His Word cannot be a good thing. For people to say, I can worship God out under a tree as much as I can in a church is absolutely false. The worship of heaven is not going to be a private matter. It's not going to be, you go sit under that celestial tree, you sit under that... No, it's all going to be public, corporate worship. It will all be one great general assembly, as it were. That's why Stephen Charnock wrote a sermon entitled, Public Worship to Vastly to be Preferred to Private Worship. And that's why we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Why? Because it is good for us to sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, because that is one of the means by which God communicates Himself. However, God acts in His providence must be a good thing, because His activity is based on His nature, which we know to be good. Now, one of my favorite stories that tells this is the story of young Mary. One of the things I think that we do to our detriment and to our lack of understanding about the Scriptures is when we somehow take the humanity out of the humans. When the angel told Mary she was going to have a child, that had to be somewhat traumatic. And we understand, at least uh, it's been traditionally so, that when this happened, Mary was somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15. And that drives it home to me because my daughter is 15 years old. I don't want to think of it as being 13. But let's just say 14 because that splits the difference, okay? One day an angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, you have found favor with God. Really? Cool. All right, they didn't say that in the Hebrew, but... <clears throat> really, that, that's terrific. You're going to have a child. Really. But I, I'm not married yet. Well, you don't have to be, because what will be conceived in you will be of the Holy Ghost. Really. Really. Blessed art thou among women. Really. And then the angel goes away. So Mary goes home and she says, uh, Dad, can we talk? Sure, honey, come on in. What's up? Well, Dad, I'm, uh, I'm pregnant. Really? No no no. No no. No, it's not like that. It's God's baby. Really? This is great news, Mary. You told Joseph? No. Joseph? Hi, Mary. Can we talk? Sure. Joseph, um, there's no other way to put this, but I'm going to have a baby. Really. It's not mine, Mary, I know that. Well, it's nobody's, Joseph, it's God's. Come on, Mary. Can't you at least have enough respect for me to tell me the truth? I think I want to go back and talk to the angel some more. Uh, angel, this is going to ruin my life. It's going to ruin my reputation. It's exactly what happened. The legend began that Mary had an illicit sexual relationship with a Roman soldier and they tried to pass it off as one of these old mythical immaculate conceptions. What was Mary's response? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to whom? To him. You see, that's who it has to seem good to. It doesn't have to seem good to me. It could ruin my life. It doesn't have to seem good to Joseph. Everybody snickered from there on. It doesn't have to seem good to anybody but God. How would you like it if the angel came to you and told you that's how blessed you were going to be? God has determined, Mary, that you have found favor with him. So on a human level, he's going to ruin your life and your reputation. Boy, isn't there anybody else he'd rather be good to? You want to be good to her for a while? But You see, that's the only response if we believe that the Lord is good and does good, is to say this, it is the Lord. Let Him do what seems good to Him. Why? Because His glory is all that matters. All that matters is Him. So it's therefore no lack of goodness in God that He chooses to honor Himself by punishing evil. Because by punishing evil, God adds good to the evil, right? Right? If the evil went unpunished, it would be nothing but evil. But God punishes it, so he adds good to it. Now, all of this really is to comfort us, Because if God is eternally good, then he never grows weary of being good or doing good. God never gets tired of doing anything. Edwards has a very, very interesting sermon in which he propagates the idea that God can never be anything but blissfully happy because everything is exactly the way He wants it to be, and mainly because God was happy with Himself before He created anything, and if He's immutable, He can't be anything but happy ever. And the reason that God is happy is because He's exactly what He wants to be. I think that would make any of us happy, as if we could be exactly what we want to be. But God never gets tired of being Himself or acting like Himself. God takes infinite delight, in infinitely doing good to his people, and he takes infinite delight in the prayers of his people that solicit that goodness from him. Try not to find prayer that way. He says prayer is nothing more than asking God to fulfill that which makes him happy. So God can never be weary of our prayers because we're simply entreating him to act according to his nature. Secondly, if you're in Christ and bear Christ's image, if you have the image of God on you, God can't be anything but good to you. Because He has to love His own image of goodness. It is impossible that God would love something that is like, could not love something that is like Himself. And it's impossible that God could ever fail to be good to you when you are in Christ His Son. I think this should show us what a great incentive and motivation to praise we have because time and time again, the Scripture calls us to praise the Lord for His goodness. First Chronicles 16.34, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. That is so much the desire of God's heart, by the way. Psalm 107, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. He satisfies the longing soul, and here's what comes next. He fills the hungry soul with what? Goodness. And then see also how obedience is nothing more than a response to the goodness of God. Romans 12, 7, Paul says this about the law. The law is holy and just, and what? It's good. So it is good for God to give us His law, and it's good for us to obey it. Why? Because His law is for our good. And then see how justified God is in His response to those who reject His goodness. In Romans 2, the judgment of God is on those who despise the riches of His goodness. And Paul is very clear that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So if men reject the goodness of God, what is left? Paul says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. If men reject His goodness, they're left with His severity, but it is their choice. And it is a choice they make and one they will have to live with. And remember what we said yesterday about the everlasting covenant, I will delight to do them good. And then listen to Psalm 34. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. It would be impossible for him to do that. That is the kind of God we have. An eternally powerful, loving, good God. He is good and he does good. So if it happens, thank you for clear scripture teaching that your nature is to be good. And your activity comes from your nature, which requires that you do good. We thank you that you have called us to yourself and that we will be the eternal recipients of what you have determined is good for us and good for yourself. And we know that all of that is working together to conform us to the image of Christ, which is obviously good. May we be thankful for thy goodness, whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not, and whether we agree with it or not, but help us and change our hearts even more to see that if you have done it, it was good, and we must be grateful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. the rare jewel of christian contentment it's a little paperback published by the banner of truth